Okay, good morning, Sir Repta. For the last ten weeks or so, we've been looking at Nehemiah. <clears throat> I've been asked to speak on chapter 11. Yeah, yeah, chapter 11, which is uh, rather a long list of names and their functions. Um, but before we get to chapter 11, what I would like to do is to actually put Nehemiah into its, both its geographical and its historical setting for us to actually appreciate what, what it is really all about. Sorry, this thing. Is that, is that a little better? Okay. Thank you. Um, so that we can appreciate what uh, Nehemiah is really all about. Um, just to set the geographical setting, if you take Israel to, to the east of Israel, uh, we have Assyria, um, and then we have Persia down here, and we have the Medes up there. Um, oh, and let's not forget the Babylonians. Yes, we need to remember the Babylonians. Okay, uh, and then north of Israel, you have Syria, not Assyria. Syria, Assyria is to the east. Syria is north. To the west, well, you actually have the Mediterranean Sea, but on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, you have two nascent powers, um, Greece and Rome, just beginning to emerge. Um, something's falling apart. Um, south of Egypt, you have, just slightly to the east, you have Arabia, and due south, you have uh, Egypt. So slap bang in the middle of all these big players, I've left out the little ones, but all these big players, slap bang in the middle of this is Israel. And that just gives a geographical setting, which we will refer to a little later. Um, but also the historical setting. Um, after the death of Solomon, you may remember that the that Israel was divided, the ten uh, kingdoms, the ten northern, uh, not kingdoms, tribes, um, seceded from Jerusalem. And they were uh, under the king uh, Jeroboam. And <coughs> Jeroboam was quite concerned that he was going to lose his exalted position because the people would go back to Jerusalem to go and worship there and would, they would again then return to Rehoboam, uh, the son of Solomon. And to prevent this, what he did was to build uh, or uh, cast two golden calves. And he says, Israel, this or these are the gods that led you uh, to freedom from Egypt. And this is the beginning of them. Uh, it's kind of casting off the moorings, if you will. And they're, they're drifting away completely from God. It takes roughly 200 years. And you see them pulling away, coming back, pulling away, coming back. But 
more and more, they don't just embrace golden calves, they now begin to embrace the gods of the nations around them, uh, Baal and the Ashtarapoles and uh, Moloch and all those other guys. The problem, the problem with embracing other gods is that those gods shape our inner world, shape our inner life. Whether they are, <coughs> excuse me, the gods of gold, golden calves, or as Jesus referred to it, mammon, possessions, which is the god of the Western world today, mammon, possessions, or any other god that you care to embrace, Whatever God we embrace shapes our inner world, shapes our lives, shapes our characters, shapes our attitudes, shapes our motives, shapes our perspective on life, on reality, and gives rise to the pathway that we take through life. It also shapes our conduct. And you see the conduct of Israel becoming increasingly worse and worse. And it pulls them away from God. And roughly 200 years later, the Assyrians invade and they cart the ten northern kingdom, uh, the t- uh, tribes away. And in a very real sense, they are lost to history. We do not know what really became of them. In the main, they do not return to Israel. And to a very large extent, we lose sight of them. It would seem, according to the historians, that they were just simply assimilated into the groups of people in which they had been placed by the Assyrians. The consequence of embracing these foreign gods is not only that they lost their homes, their land, uh, and their freedom, they lost something even more significant. They lost their identity. They lost their true identity. Who they truly are. Oh, thank you. Losing your identity. I, no, let's not go down that road. That'll be, that's a story for another day. It, it's a long story. And it's a serious story. But that's what happened to them. Uh, back to my little narrative here. There he is. All right, Judah continues for another roughly 125 years. Uh, If you remember, they were saved from the Assyrians by a plague. 
So they managed to continue for another 125 years, more or less. But they too had slipped their moorings, and they too were beginning to drift away from the Lord. And they too had this kind of yo-yo relationship with God, drawing near, pulling away, drawing near, pulling away. And God warns them again and again and again. Now, just to appreciate Nehemiah and the entire setting, we really need to have a a reasonably good insight into Ezra. Ezra and Nehemiah, by the way, in the Jewish scriptures is one book. Uh, But we also need to have an insight into 1st and 2nd Chronicles. In fact, um, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah, were one writing at one stage. Uh, assumed to have been written by Ezra the priest. So we need at least an insight into the second half, or the last, maybe the last quarter of Second Chronicles, Ezra, as well as Nehemiah, and one more, Jeremiah. You ever read Jeremiah? Hear what he has to say, or hear what God has to say through Jeremiah. And all the warnings that he brings to Judah. Here's just something, um, in a sense, God in his frustration. The children of Israel and the children of Judah have done only evil before me since their youth. And have provoked me only to anger with the work of their hands. With the work of their hands. What did Jesus say? The mouth speaks forth from the overflow of the heart. And I would say that the hands, if you will, reflect or or perhaps serve the ambitions of the heart. We may profess Jesus is Lord. And how many times have we not done that? And then the works of our hands betray our profession. You ever had that problem? What does that speak of? Our inner world. It speaks of that world that has been shaped by those gods we referred to. But that's a story for another day. Jeremiah doesn't only give dire warnings. Jeremiah makes promises that are truly, truly astonishing. In fact, there is one promise that he made, the consequence of which sees you sitting here today. It's a direct consequence of that promise. Listen to it. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. A new covenant. It's hard for us to really grasp 
the seriousness of this statement. God is doing away with the previous covenant. This is a new covenant. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. No longer engraved in stone. Written on our hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord. <coughs> Excuse me. Because they will know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. The covenant of grace. Instituted roughly 500 years later through Jesus. And despite these promises that God makes... Judah continues drifting away from the Lord. God continues warning them. And in the end, in a sense, it's almost as if he just says, well, I give up with you. And this is what God says. Listen, I am going to bring on Judah and everyone living in Jerusalem, every disaster I pronounced against them. I spoke to them, but they did not listen. I called to them, but they did not answer. They ignored the Lord. How often are we guilty of ignoring God? To our own peril. The consequence... Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians, invade Judah and deport them, especially Jerusalem. It seems it is the very center of their attention and they utterly destroy it. They break down the walls, they break down the temple, they, and what they can't break, they burn. And they just leave utter destruction behind them. But there's another promise that God makes. Listen to it. This is what the Lord says. Jeremiah speaking to them. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. Seventy years, you're going to be out there in Babylon. Seventy years, the lifespan of a human being, three, three score and ten. It's almost as if God is taking one of the links out of the chain of the lifespan, or the his, history span rather, 
of Judah. But these are not uh, just 70 years. That's quite a long time. Isn't it? I mean, really. Why? This is just my surmising, my guess. You may not like it. Forgive me if you don't. Each one of us here is, to a very large extent, the product of our culture. It is the one aspect in our life that very few, if anybody, ever really questions. It is the given in our life. Our culture is the platform on which we stand and take our perspective on life, yet rarely ever looking down at the platform and questioning it. One of the problems, or it's one of the reasons for the many problems that we have in our relationships, cross-cultural relationships, the platform from which we take our perspective. And the problem with culture, and it really is a problem, the moment you are born, it begins its insidious work on your life, or in your life. And when we're this big, we don't have what is required to refute it. We don't have the intellectual ability. We don't have the insight. We don't have the background or the backdrop against which to compare it and say, wait, whoa, 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 this is not right. We just take it in. And to all intents and purposes, we become the expression of our culture. almost thoughtlessly. And I suspect that's what happened here in Judah. They had taken on the culture of the nations around them. And God says, hey, I've got to break this. I'm going to take this generational link out of their chain. These are not lost years. Please, uh, when, I, when I first read it, I thought, wow, 70 years, gee. Lord, that's a, a lot of time. But much happened in those 70 years that to some extent resulted again in you and me being here today. Hard as it might be to believe, The first thing, up there, as as has happened with all of us, have you ever noticed when, when we lose something, how often it's only then that we awaken to what we actually had? We took it for granted until we lost it. And then we, I think your word is, we vogat, we woke up, we said, wow, we've lost it. And 
That is one of the things that I think that happened out there in Babylon. They awoke to the realization of what they had lost. But it was also there that the synagogue was born. Now we always think of, well I don't know about you, me, I always just thought of synagogue as a very Jewish thing. The very word synagogue is Greek. Sun, I go. Sun, together, I go to lead or to bring. To lead or to bring together. A meeting of all, this would be a sun, I go in Greek. It was there that it began. They didn't have a temple to go to. But they still, and having awoken to what they'd lost, they they wanted to come together and to study the law, study the scriptures, and to pray together, which is what they did. And when they returned from exile, this came with them. And there were synagogues established all over Asia and Europe. And where did Paul go to when he took the gospel to Asia and Europe? The first place he went to always was the synagogue. It gave him entry into that town, into that city, into those people. The synagogue that was established when the Jews were in exile. These were not wasted years. God was preparing for something beyond, something more. And God is always preparing for something more, by the way. Now, that's a story for another day. We won't get on that either. <coughs> okay. So, these 70 years pass. Um, the Persians beat up the Babylonians, and Cyrus, uh, king of Persia, he sets the Jews free and he says, go home and go and build a temple in Jerusalem. I pondered this quite a bit. Build a temple in Jerusalem. What on earth is so significant about Jerusalem? Really? I mean, really, really, really? You know, if you, if you look at all the other cities of the world at that stage, Jerusalem was a nothing. It had been destroyed anyway. It was never even particularly much before it was destroyed. It's not like it was anywhere near the coast. It, was, it wasn't sort of near a harbor. It, it wasn't on any major uh, trade route. In fact, it wasn't on any trade route, major or otherwise, to get to Jerusalem from a trade route. You had to make a big detour. It wasn't like they had uh, uh, mining there, you know, gold or tin or iron or copper. It wasn't a, I, I, they didn't even manufacture anything. Why on earth is it so significant? And it is significant. David, of course, chose Jerusalem for its location. Not simply because it was easily defended. 
know, the east, west, and south. Very hard to approach the city from there. Steep slopes. Gave the attackers a, a serious disadvantage. Only the north was a... In fact, it's from the north that they always attacked Jerusalem. But that, I don't think, is why David particularly chose it. He chose it because Jerusalem happens to be in the middle of Israel. And so it would unite the south and the north under his kingship. But I hardly think that Cyrus was overly concerned about David's choice of uniting the north and the south. But he said, go build a temple in Jerusalem. You know, there are few pieces of real estate on earth over which more battles have been fought than Jerusalem, this insignificant place. We get a clue as to what the real significance of Jerusalem is way back in Deuteronomy chapter 12. Moses is speaking to the people and he says, when you go into the promised land, Don't become like those people and go and worship under every tree and on every hilltop, etc. But go to the place uh, that God chooses to put his name there as his dwelling. In the, I think it's the New New King James, next to the word dwelling, they put a T translation. Home. I like that, so let's change that. God's home. This is what Jerusalem is. God's home on earth. Listen, when Solomon had built the temple and he he was dedicating the temple and he prayed, God responds and said, I have heard your prayer and your plea which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house which you have built By putting my name there forever, my name, my presence, my eyes and my heart will always be there. And then again, when God's speaking to Jeroboam and saying, I'm taking away Israel from Solomon and I'm going to give it to you. But he adds, but to his son, uh, Rehoboam, to his son, I will give one tribe that my servant David may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem that the city which I have chosen for myself to put my name there the city that I have chosen for myself Jerusalem is the city God has chosen for himself Jerusalem is the epicenter of God's presence on earth. In the midst of Israel, which is in the midst of all those big nations, that is the epicenter of God's presence on earth. Then, and in one sense, still, in a certain sense, today. And it's from there 
that he intends to spread that influence, the influence of his presence, right around the entire globe. It was there, in Jerusalem, that Jesus introduces this new covenant. It is there that Jesus is crucified and resurrected from the dead. It is there that Jesus says to the disciples after his resurrection, you shall be my witnesses. Not, you know, we won't go down that road, that's another story for another day too, but you shall be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem. Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And I believe that the restoration of Jerusalem back under uh, Ezra and uh, Nehemiah is in preparation for that which God is planning for the future. The coming of the new covenant. The coming of Christ. But that, again, that's also another story for another day. Um, all right, so how are we doing for time? Fallen asleep at good Lord, I think we'd better end. Um, all right, very, very quickly, very briefly. We've still got to get to chapter 11, by the way. Uh, Zerubbabel is the first one to return. Um, he, he's, Zerubbabel, he, he was a prince. He was the grandson of Jehoiakim, the king that was carried into exile. Um, and they immediately began to build the temple. Um, but it took them ten years to complete it, simply because of all the opposition that they had. You, you've noticed the, the opposition Nehemiah had as well, of course. Uh, Ezra had the same, um, or, or rather uh, Zerubbabel had the same problem. Um, just a verse there that strikes me. It's in Ezra 3.12 for the note takers. But many of the elderly priests, Levites, and heads of the families who had seen the first temple wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house, of the new temple. By comparison, it was so small, so insignificant. And they were looking back, you know, you know that expression, looking back to those good old days? I'm, never so, I'm not so sure that they were so good. We, th we only think in memory that they were. When we were there, were they the good old days? Forget it. There's a great danger in harking back to the past. We don't want to go backwards. We don't want to go back there. Wonderful as it was. And I remember the great days of Sarepta some 30 years ago, whatever it was. They were wonderful days. But God moves on. And there is a pruning. And there is a cutting away. And things may not look so good now as they did in the good old days back then. But God is moving forward, not backwards. Let's move with him.
move into that future that is the future God plans for those who will keep pace for him, who will keep step with the Spirit. Anyways, uh, Ezra, uh, sorry, not Ezra, Zerubbabel builds, builds the temple. And about 60 years afterwards, Ezra arrives. He's going to kind of build up the people in the, in the law of God now. The temple's been built, now you want to build the people up in the law of God. Uh, no time to look at that. Um, about 13 years after Ezra, Nehemiah arrives. And you all know the story of Nehemiah. We've been at it for 10 weeks now, so there's not much I can tell you there. Uh, <clears throat> except I ask one question. Why? Why Nehemiah? I mean, I'm, I'm not being unkind or anything. Zerubbabel was a was a prince, a natural leader. Ezra was a well-educated man, gifted in his ability to communicate. Nehemiah, I think Nehemiah's greatest qualification is that he was expendable. He was a cupbearer. Come on. You know what cupbearers do, really? They have to drink the wine before the king does to see if there was poison in the wine so that the king doesn't die. You die in his place. Which means you're quite expendable. And, you know, if you die, well, okay, we'll just get another cupbearer. You come, come be my cupbearer. Cupbearers are expendable people. They have no significance. Why on earth? Nehemiah. It's worth a study. We don't have time for that. But I, I would urge you, just look at him. I just put... Six points. I'll just read them to you. I won't speak on them. No time. The first thing I've got, a true man of God. He is a man who has chosen to live for something greater than himself. In, in a very real sense. He is a man who has died to himself. The value of his life in his own eyes is what he can do for the kingdom. That's it. He's not serving God for what he can get out of God. How often don't we do that? We serve him for the benefits we derive. My salvation. My peace. My joy. What's the reference point here? God? No. Me. He wasn't like that, was he? He was willing to risk his life. He was willing to have his head chopped off by the king so that he could fulfill God's purpose for him. He was truly a man of God. He was a humble man. He was willing to acknowledge 
his sins, not just in some religious, you know, uh, yeah, I, I, I know I'm a sinner saved by, saved by grace, and not that I completely subscribe to that stuff, but is there really real sincerity? I'm a sinner, you know, yeah. Do we really believe it? He confessed his sins, and though he doesn't mention those sins at all, he confesses that he and his fathers, in other words, the rest of the leaders of Israel, have blown it. We are where we are because of the life we have lived. This is the consequence of drifting away from you. It takes a a truly humble man to acknowledge in truth his or her own shortcomings, their sins. Thirdly, he was a man of prayer. You see many of, how how many times doesn't he, just in the moment, uh, he kind of offers up a quickie. This tells me that he was a man of prayer. He was used to praying. It wasn't a case of, well, I've exhausted every other thing. I've tried this. I've done that. I've asked. I've asked. I've, and nobody can. I suppose all that's left is to pray now. How often don't we use it as the last desperate bid because we have no other possible solution to our problem? Not him. The first thing he does, he weeps and fasts and prays before God. Something I believe that the church needs to do do a lot more today. To be a people who really pray. And again, more about that another time. A lot more about that another time. He was a courageous, resourceful leader. He never asked others to do what he was not willing to do. Nothing was too demeaning for him. He was always in the forefront of the fray. Always. He was also a man of singular focus and great determination. Despite being uh, hassled, harried, uh, threatened uh, and conspired against by those enemies of his. I think I wrote their names down. Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem. Despite that, he keeps his focus. He remains on the job, all the time. And then, lastly, he's a reformer. When he's finished the wall, he doesn't say, my job is done. I'm going home to relax now. He becomes, if you like, in a way, politically involved. And he tackles the issues that face them. And he calls the people to account. But you can read all about that yourself. And the last thing he does, for me, he calls Israel to what I would call a pure worship. A focus that is exclusively on God. Let us become, in truth, the people of God. 
truly. And that brings me to chapter 11. May I read it to you? We're going to look at one verse and then I'm closed. I'm tired and I'm sure you are too. Very quickly, uh, the leaders, now the leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of every ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the remaining nine were to stay in their own towns. And the people, I prefer, the people commended all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. In fact, the people blessed all the men who willingly offered themselves to dwell in Jerusalem. This seems to imply to me they didn't actually want to live in Jerusalem. This was not first prize for most people. Oh yes, they wanted to live around Jerusalem where the blessings of God's presence would flow over into their lives. And I think the same is true today. They didn't want to move right into the very center of Jerusalem. I guess the charge was just too high there. It would consume them. And they would lose their life and be caught up entirely in God. To move into Jerusalem means sacrificing our own agendas, our own desires, our own dreams, our own wishes. And to be caught up as the living stones with which God is building the new Jerusalem. And the question I ask you, to what extent are you willing to move into Jerusalem? That means forsaking everything else. Jesus makes some astonishing statements which very rarely have I ever heard anyone preach on. The first one I have heard, it's in Luke 9, 20 something. Just read Luke 9, you'll find it. If you would be my disciple, deny yourself. Deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and follow me. The next one's in Luke 14, I think it's 33. Somewhere around there anyway. If you do not give up everything, you cannot be my disciple. Moving into Jerusalem, oh, this is uncomfortable, isn't it? Moving into Jerusalem is giving up everything. Will we, as Sarepta, become, as it were, 
Jerusalem here? Will we be, as it were, the home of God? Remember, God now no longer builds in a, lives in a building of stones, but in the human heart. Will you be that Jerusalem? If we're going to be the people God wants us to be, if we're going to serve the purpose for which Sarepta actually exists, then we need to be willing to become living stones in the new Jerusalem. Amen.